This is A Hateful Homicide. Join me, Mallory Jenner Robinson, as I go through the cases, the brutal murders and homicides of transgender, non-binary, and gender diverse community members throughout the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. Tuesday, June 20th, 4 a.m. A 911 call rings out. 911, what is your emergency? The sky was unusually bright that night. The air humid and even described as sultry, embracing the moonlight sky. 25-year-old Amanda Milan had just finished working at a luxurious escort agency in New York City. She stops over into Times Square to join an early morning coffee group of other trans women who sometimes gathered at the McDonald's on 8th Avenue and 43rd Street to talk about their days and even their futures. Amanda Milan, born October 14, 1974, described as a tall black trans woman with long black hair that would often mask her beautiful facial features. She had a welcoming smile and she was known for her famous ruby red glossy lipstick. And oftentimes described by her peers, she would what we would consider in the um, trans community as I am a black trans woman as well, we would describe this as being passable um, and being able to be passable as a cisgender woman. A cisgender person is someone who is born, they're assigned sex at birth, and then they still continue to identify as that same sex even in their later years. For transgender individuals like myself and Milan, we're typically assigned one sex at birth, but then begin to identify as the opposite of that sex, and therefore we are considered transgender. So, but around the Port Authority, one of the police agencies in the New York Chelsea district, uh, people recognize these girls, quote unquote, who would often hang out around the Duane Reed drugstore at that time. Amanda was someone as a celebrity in that circle. She was very well liked. She had been in the New York community for a few years, and so she was definitely, definitely well received by the New York community. Amanda kisses her friends goodbye at around 4 a.m. again on June 20th, 2000. This is between the cross sections of 8th Avenue. Amanda is hoping to catch a cab in front of the bus terminal. Her friends watch as she leaves and continues to watch as a man approaches her. This man, a black man from the Bronx, 20-year-old Dwayne McCuller. He had been standing on the street corner for at least an hour, witnesses said. Some people believe maybe his plans for the night had fallen through. Maybe he was just out bored. But nonetheless, he saw Amanda walk past him as she's leaving her friends to go over and catch a cab. But McCuller just couldn't leave it alone. Witnesses said that they saw him tense up as he saw Amanda walking. And unknown, although it's unclear exactly what was said directly, some eyewitnesses or earwitnesses, as I should call them, did would hear some of the things that Amanda and Dwayne would exchange between each other before the brutal 
murder. Ear witnesses heard Dwayne McCullough yell at Amanda, get your fucking drag queen ass away from me. Another ear witness heard him say, I know what you have between your legs. Amanda, who was known for being bold and brave and always stood up to individuals said, if a guy was looking at her funny, she might walk up to him and say, do we have a problem? According to Salonda.com, she wasn't gonna stand there and be degraded. Someone said they heard her challenge him to fisticuffs. She said, I'm a man too, you wanna fight? Or maybe put up your right feeders and fight me like a man. Although no one can confirm the exact words exchanged at the beginning of this scuffle, um, but the event unfolded like this according to some of the police reports. McCuller yelled, I'll shoot you. I have a gun and I ought to punch you in the face with it. Amanda at that moment realized that this situation was escalating to a level of violence. She walked away. A bystander, a 26-year-old black security guard from New York, from Queens, New York, named Eugene Celestine, heard him go up to McCullough and say, yo, I got a knife. McCullough responded, give it to me. Amanda, now halfway across the street, McCullough grabs the knife from Celestine's hands, runs across the street. Amanda's friends are witnessing this exchange. They're yelling, the New York traffic is 4 a.m. It's New York City, it's near Times Square. She can't hear her friends warning her. Unfortunately, McCullough had caught up to her. As Milan reached the corner of 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, McCullough plunged the knife into her throat. Amanda falls into the ground in front of the Wayne Weed Drug Center, where she began to bleed to death. A young Puerto Rican man from the Bronx who had witnessed this, he took off his shirt, wrapped it around Amanda's neck to stop the bleeding. He rocked her in his arms, saying, baby, don't leave us. As she stood, as others stood and watched, the police arrives to the scene around 4.20 a.m. and rush Amanda to the St. Vincent's Hospital in Chelsea, where at 4.45 a.m. on June 20, 2000, Amanda is dead. This brief moment in time, as this is the beginning of the year 2000, or as it was called at that time, Y2K, just six months into the new decade, into the new century, the new millennia, 25-year-old Amanda Milan is dead. At first, the killing received somewhat mainstream attention. Uh, people from the New York Times described Amanda's case as, quote unquote, a man was fatally stabbed in Midtown Manhattan yesterday after a dispute with two other men. This was posted in a June 21st news brief. They also quoted the victim found on the sidewalk, dressed in women's clothing and stabbed once in the neck. But what at first seemed to outsiders like a barely newsworthy event in the sorted lives of Times Square, this began to galvanize the New York transgender community into a level of activism that had not been seen so much more since Stonewall. 
because of the graphic and public nature of this crime and because we have some of the powerful mythology that has surrounded it since even 20 years later, Amanda Malone's death had really struck a raw nerve among the people. To outsiders of this community, Milan might have just been another trans prostitute killed in Hell's Kitchen. But to many, she was a modern. And believe me, her death galvanized the transgender community and instigated change. The Reverend Presley Sutherland of Metropolitan Community Church at this time quoted, it's probably very similar to the post-Stonewall response. I don't think that people, I don't think that it's an overstatement either. I think her death has a tremendous impact. Reverend Presley Sutherland at this time, he placed and put on a memorial service and people came together in the bulks of hundreds to celebrate and remember Amanda Milan. As people came together and reacted, this was a real watershed moment for a moment of trans visibility and trans activism, according to Salon.com. People who had been in the movement for years and years had never experienced that kind of solidarity like in this moment. The attention turns to the simultaneous trials of these three men involved in the attack. You have Dwayne McCullough, the murderer. You have Eugene Celestine, who aided and abetted with providing the murder weapon. And then you had David Anderson, who's also 26, and who helped McCullough escape from police after the incident. It's so interesting when we think about this because these three men did not know each other. But in this fateful moment, they all came together, or should I say in this hateful moment, they all came together to really hurt Amanda Milan. So let's take some time in this moment to know a little bit more about Amanda Milan before we go into the events following her murder, the trials, and the overall convictions. Amanda Milan was 25 when she was killed. Born in 1974, she was born Damon Lee Dyer and grew up in Chicago, Illinois, in a South Side area. In 1983, at the age of eight, she came out to her family and even to her friends as being transgender. I myself initially came out at the age of five, um, and I can totally relate to Amanda in this case, where you know who you are at such an early age, even though the time isn't ready for it, but you still know who you are. And the, the way she was brave to stand in her truth and own who she was at such an early age, it just again shows you the type of person that Amanda Milan was. Amanda ultimately moved to New York after her time in Chicago, probably around the age of 19, according to some witnesses of some family members, excuse me, who knew her. Within the several years of her living in New York, she lived in an apartment at Central Park West and 103rd Street with her Pomeranian, a dog named Ashley. She also traveled quite a bit. She traveled to places like Paris, London and even Milan, which is the last thing that she would take because that was described by others, her favorite place to travel. 
she did work as a high-class sex worker and she was very proud of that you know they would be considered as models at this time because she went through a high-class agency and she was known for being fashionable and beautiful and she had a really good friend Naima Patra um, who was a Jamaican trans woman who too also lived in the same apartment building at that time with Amanda Milan and she spent a great deal of time with her. Amanda also had several other friends that she was very close with. Those friends would include individuals like Kim, a young Puerto Rican trans woman, as well as other women like Simone, a black trans woman that she knew and worked closely with. These three women, often described as Charlie's angels because they were thick as thieves, had so much in common, worked together and celebrated together. But as so in life, all three, these three best friends, would meet the same fate through a hateful homicide. The first of these three friends to be murdered was Kim. Described as a 24-year-old young Puerto Rican trans woman, she you know, worked at an agency called Show World. She had went to England and then to Australia, Kim, where she was found at the bottom of a cliff. Her body mangled. The medical examiner identified the body by the serial number on her breast implants, said Naima Patra, a friend of all three of the ladies whom were murdered. Kim died on January 14, 1999 in Australia at just the age of 24. Amanda and Simone were devastated. They all have been so close throughout the early and mid-90s. And to know that Kim was dead, this was devastating. After this, Simone and Amanda remained close. But Simone decided to go off to San Francisco, one, another liberal city in the state of California. And she decided to go there with her boyfriend. Simone, described as a beautiful 22-year-old black trans woman, had left the city of New York within a month or so after Kim had been found murdered in Australia. And six months later, Simone was murdered. It was August 4th, 1999. Simone was found at the bottom of a fifth story apartment building, dead. It's still unclear as to how both Kim and Simone met their fates. Were they pushed? Did they jump? But within the community, we strongly believe that these two women were murdered due to the fact of who they were, how they stood in their troops so bravely, the timing and the circumstances. Their cases still remain unsolved to this day. So by August of 1999, Amanda was left all alone. Her two best friends who she had kicked off the year 1999 into both had been gone in such a short period of time. Amanda was devastated. 
But Naima Patra, her good friend who lived in the same apartment building as her, said that after these deaths that she and Amanda would go walking through Central Park West, they would wander around and talk about things like what their lives would have been like if they would have remained um, cisgendered men. They wondered if they would have been able to fit in, even get some form of quote unquote respectable work and ideally be accepted as normal. But of course, the type of women that both Amanda and Naima are and were, they knew that that approach, that approach would never sit well with them. According to Naima Petra, on one of these walks, Amanda had a philosophy, and it was, and emulate yourself for mental slavery. Stand up and be who you are, and play that role boldly. She said all of us have an abiding reality, and death is the only judgment of how a life is lived. She believed there is no justification in living a life of lies if deep down in your heart you know who you are. So, following the death of Amanda, we're going into her murder was on Tuesday, June 20th, 2000 at 4.45 a.m. We're going to fast forward to that same week into that Saturday where a group of transgender individuals all come together and they go to the Metropolitan Community Church where Reverend Presley Sutherland hosts a group for gender diverse community members. Reverend Sutherland can remember people coming in looking so sad, how they could barely raise their heads, how they could barely look at each other. Some came in angry, you know, saying that they just had been catcalled and propositioned in the street on the way to the church. A few latecomers arrived with lists of political issues they wanted to address. There was a coordinator for this group event, founded and coordinated by Jamie Hunter. She was asked, she asked the group to read several poems aloud to really get outsiders of the community, members who are not of the trans experience, to really hear and understand the pain and the anguish that we as trans people face on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis. The group talked about how gender diverse people, all types of ages, should be respected and even revered. As the meeting progressed, Hunter passed around a black binder. The binder inside contained 16 white pages. These white pages contained a list of names of fallen and slain trans individuals who too had met their ending by a hateful homicide. These white pages are notated in black ink and it listed names such as Terry Ladwick, who was strangled to death in December of 1994. Tasha Dunn, who was bludgeoned to death in October of 1990. Nikki Spring, who was thrown off of a roof in 1976. Grace Candace Baxter, choked to death 
1992. Marsha P. Johnson drowned in July of 1992. Maxwell Confair burned alive in 1972. Some people read through it, recognizing some of the names of people that they knew as friends, allies, and others who were really near and dear to them. Some of these outsiders of the community who were there for this event would just flip through the pages with expressionless and dull eyes, according to some eyewitnesses. But nonetheless, the day of being silent, that was over. The transgender community through the media and popular culture with movies like Boys Don't Cry, in which Hilary Swank won Best Actress Oscar for her portrayal of trans man Brandon Tina. His murder occurred in 1993 in Nebraska. Nonetheless, three weeks prior to Amanda Milan's murder, there had been some legislative change beginning to happen. People had started to put into place these legal, you know, legislative changes, and we're gonna talk more about that in just a moment. But I wanna circle back to the crowd that gathered for Amanda. 300 people descended on the Metropolitan Community Church. This was one of the few LGBTQ churches on the West 36th Street. They attended her memorial service. Who assisted in this and led the service prominently was the Reverend Pat Baumgartner. This was a collective effort which had a moment of emotional remembrance. There was a call to arms. One friend spoke about how, how Amanda was so kind and loving. Another friend spoke about how Milan had saved her from being homeless and helped her get started in school. Octavia St. Lawrence who was known for the 1991 documentary, Paris is Burning, that focused on the New York drag queen scene, eulogized her friend, demanding that the audience not allow her death to go unnoticed. After the service, others joined the congregation for a march to the site of Malone's death at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. There, you could find a shrine of flowers, photographs, and poems, all celebrating and loving on Amanda. Although Amanda Milan's death did not have the national impact of the murders, such as Matthew Shepard, who was murdered in 1998 in white only, he identified as a cis gay man, or even Brandon Tina, who identified as a trans heterosexual man. Even though her murder did not garner that national impact, the murder had become a regional rallying for attention and memorialization. The memorial service attracted the attention of both the gay press and even that of the New York Times. In response to the publicity and outpouring of concern, the LGBT community and their services centers in the downtown Manhattan area hosted a downtown hall meeting focused on violence against transgender people. 
Over 200 people crowded in the center on September 28, 2000. This meeting was called Violence and Survival. Transgender people tell their stories. Peter Ryder, a legislative aide to Manhattan City Councilwoman Christine Quinn at that time, he handled transgender issues. He was in attendance of this meeting on September 28th. And he loved feeling that Milan's death had led to a change. At the town hall, people had time to translate the initial shock and grieving about her death into the larger picture of the experiences of trans people, he said. Then, just a couple of months later, at the end of November, members of the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy organized a forum on hate crimes at Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village. At the beginning of the event, the 50 or so attendees were asked to observe a moment of prayer for 17 transgender people who were killed in the past 12 months. We have later acknowledged this day as Transgender Day of Remembrance. It is still held every year in November. There, during this discussion, there was a focus on amending a state hate crime law that was passed in New York City in July of that year to include gender as one of the protected categories. Many other states have already included gender in their hate crimes legislation. According to the Anti-Defamation League, which was a Jewish organization that monitors hate crimes, only seven of the 31 states that had hate crime statutes in 1990 included gender as a protected category. As of now, in 2000 at that time, 19 of the 41 statutes added penalties to sentences in cases where the victims were chosen because of their gender. A similar fight is taking place on a municipal level in New York, where six members of the city council have sponsored a bill that would provide gender diverse people with the legal means to fight discrimination in terms of employment, housing, and other city supportive services. Gender, as defined by the bill, shall include actual or perceived sex and shall also include a person's gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior or expression, whether or not that gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior, or expression is different from that traditionally associated with the legal sex assigned to that person at birth. If the bill is enacted, New York at that time would become the 27th jurisdiction in the United States to adopt such a statute. Although the measure was, was introduced about three weeks before Milan was murdered, her death and activism and the publicity that it generated had begun to bring a new sense of urgency to getting this measure passed. Ryder, who had helped draft this bill, said that one of the last stumbling blocks is convincing other council members that such protections are needed. I think the really positive thing that emerged from her death was a refreshed sense of activism in the community, he quoted. 
It has become a rallying cry. Their show of solidarity and strength has also provided hope, he concludes. The director of community organizing for the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project, Clarence Patton, he monitors bias attacks, said murders of transgender people are nothing new. According to the statistics he provided at that time, which the police did not confirm, there have been at least seven unsolved murders of transgender people in New York since 1992, including that of Marsha P. Johnson, who was one of the leading causes of the Stonewall Movement of 1969. This case garnered so much attention within the trans community, especially for leaders who were still initially part of that Stonewall Movement, such as Sylvia Rivera. She too advocated and spoke up about Milan's case. She was also a dear and near friend of Marsha P. Johnson. Often the bodies of murdered trans women are discovered in dumpsters, hotel rooms, or by the Chelsea Piers. Oftentimes, if a trans person survives an attack, sometimes they don't press charges. There was one element of Milan's death that was particularly disturbing. No one who was on the scene that night can confirm this detail of the story, but because it has been repeated so often by second-hand and third-hand sources, it has become a significant part of the mythology surrounding her death. This is it. When McCuller allegedly plunged the knife into Milan's throat, a group of people standing around, these people described as cabbies, street vendors, even drug dealers, cheered and clapped. Christiana Domeleche, 48 at the time, quoted, a woman gets her throat slit and everyone stands around and applauds. How much more of this can a community take? A member of New York Association of Gender Rights Advocates, Evie Elvis, 37 at the time, said it's almost a public sacrifice to gender oppression. It was us as the sacrificial lamb. Now, we come up to what has happened since Amanda's fateful and hateful homicide. Both Dwayne McCullough and Eugene Celestine have been indicted on charges of second degree murder and if convicted could face up to life in prison. The third man, David Anderson, has been charged with hindering the prosecution by hiding McCullough in his Brooklyn apartment and he too, if convicted, faces up to seven years behind bars. The police at this time could not classify Amanda Milan's murder as a bias and or hate crime. A spokeswoman for the police department, Detective Carolyn Chu, said it did not fit the criteria of a biased crime. She declined to explain the department's reasoning. The trial opened two years later on September 1st, 2002 in the state Supreme Court under Judge Joan Sudunanik. 
former director of legal services services for the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Violence Project, Lauren added, said the prosecutors refused to reclassify the case as a bias and or hate crime. She said that this is wrong. This case absolutely merits this. We don't know everything that happened there, but I think the fact that explicit anti-transgender bias language was used makes this argument. Our belief is that when the bias is involved, violence escalates more quickly, and that is my impression of what happened in this case." End quote. During their trials, McCullough, Celestine, and Anderson have pleaded guilty. An attorney assigned to McCullough, Fred Siegelman, through the New York Public's Defenders Program said he hasn't heard anything about the classification of the case. He noted, I don't see any indication that this is a biased crime. Beyond that, he declined to comment any further. The Manhattan District Attorney, Roger Morgenthau, also declined, declined to comment. But according to Barbara Thompson, a spokeswoman for the DA's office, because the murder took place before the state's hate crimes laws went into effect, classification of the crime as a biased attack would have little effect in the judge's ruling. She added that the purpose of hate crime legislation is to enhance the penalties in bias-related cases. Unfortunately, in this case, the defendant has already been charged with murder, so no additional penalties could be applied. As she put it, quote unquote, you simply can't enhance a homicide. But others argue that labeling as a biased crime would aid future efforts to protect transgender people. Co-founder of the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, which helped draft New York's hate crimes bills, Pauline Hart said, if it doesn't bear any weight on this specific case, it would lend weight to our argument. It would be an example of a hate crime based on gender identity that prosecutors could look at in terms of sorting out gender identity from sexual orientation. Her case is a case in which specific epithets were hurled at her. And it was not hurled because of her sexual preference, but it was because of her gender identity. Park also said that though the state statute covers hate crimes motivated by race, sex, sexual orientation, it does not cover gender identification and or presentation. And transgender people are not necessarily gay. So I want to take a moment to talk to you all a little bit more about who Amanda was and the impact she left on her community. You know, we take a look at this case 20 years, almost 21 years later, and it's really shocking and saddening to know that so many of my trans brothers, trans sisters, non-binary relatives across the country, across the world, still to this day, gets this type of treatment. I wanna provide a few more quotes from some of the law officials and news media. And then I wanna go into talking about, again, the effect 
that Amanda's death had on her loved ones and provides some of the information that they shared in media interviews. I want to go back and uh, provide a quote uh, from one of the detectives, Diane Dyer McKee. Diane Dyer McKee stated, I think it was a hate crime and anyone who is trying to call it anything else is simply wrong. Diane Dyer McKee not only was an officer of the law, but she also was a relative of Milan and even took care of Milan as a child. This guy came up behind my nephew and slit his throat, quote unquote. A police spokesman, Detective John Giamarino, said it was from a dispute, not a biased crime, and he refused to further comment on the case. Around 2002, March of that year, Governor George E. Pataki signed a bill that imposes sterner sentences on criminals who go after their victims based on race, religion, sexual orientation, or age. But there's still more work to be done when adding it to our transgender community. Milan's cousin, Tamika L. Clark, 25 at the time, did an interview with the New York Times they came to her home in the south side of Chicago where her and other relatives of Milan said that they were very grateful for the support that she had received when she went to New York to get Milan's body and bring it back to Chicago for burial. To know that someone has been taken away because of the way of life is not going to sit well with any of us. She quoted, he was perfectly healthy and to just be taken away like that, it was devastating to us. But it is a comfort for us to know that this is not going unnoticed. So, as we conclude the first episode of A Hateful Homicide, I wanted to provide a final quote from Amanda Milan's murder, mother, excuse me. Her mother quoted, Damon was my child for 25 years. I knew my child was different and unique, and I was so proud of them for who they chose to be. They knew that they would have a much easier time in New York, and it breaks my heart to know that my child received such little support around her murder but is so grateful for the community, the trans community, for upholding and uplifting Amanda. So, to all my listeners out there who are just tuning in, who have been listening the whole time, I thank you for taking time out of your day to be part of the pilot and the first episode of the murder of Amanda Milan. Like so many of us of the transgender, non-binary, and gender diverse community, we face discrimination daily, whether it's through employment, whether it's through housing, whether it's even through now taking a ride share, we face those discriminations. We are a community, we are here, and we are not going anywhere. So I just wanna say 
Amanda Milan, October 14, 1974 to June 20, 2000. We remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. Thank you so much for tuning in to A Hateful Homicide. And join us. Our regular scheduled episodes will be on Sundays. And they will be aired and published on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other platforms for your leisure. Please share and follow me on Instagram at Mallory, M-A-L-L-E-R-Y, Jenna, J-E-N-N-A, 90. If there's a case that you know that you would love for me to share, please reach out to me. I'm always open to more feedback. There are plenty of cases to cover and we have much more work to be done. But I firmly believe that through this podcast that we can have unity and community. So let's continue to make good history. Thank you and good day.